0: Well, good morning once again. I am glad that you are able to join us this Sunday morning as we look into God's Word and uh, just welcome my Lakeside family and any guests and others who may be viewing uh, here close to home or from afar. And we're continuing in our series on Matthew, which we've been in for a while now, um, but uh, are nearing completion at Easter. And last week we looked at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, where Jesus lays out a process of forgiveness within the Christian community, and we unpacked a lot of lessons uh, just in those three verses uh, that Jesus baked into those three simple steps of how forgiveness is meant to take place within Christian community. We talked about vulnerability and transparency and um, all of those types of things. But Peter, uh, of course, isn't quite done with this topic yet, and because Peter isn't quite done with it, uh, as I thought about it over the week, I'm thinking maybe we're not quite done with this topic either, because Peter has a question to ask, and Jesus has more to teach from the question that Peter asks, and I think it's important that we learn this. It's uh, probably some of the most important lessons about Christian forgiveness that we can learn uh, we will look at today. So Peter isn't done with this topic of forgiveness yet. He's sort of chewing on what Jesus has said about forgiveness. He knows that this teaching that Jesus is doing is important to the disciples and to the church going forward. And so maybe Peter is wanting to show Jesus how well he's received the lesson or how faithful he wants to be to Jesus's commands. And so in Matthew 18, verse 21, after the teaching on forgiveness, Peter comes up to Jesus. It says, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven, or seven times seventy, a lot of times, depending on how you read the Greek. So, how many times... Do we go through this process of forgiveness with the same person, is what Peter is asking. How many times do we have to forgive someone who keeps wounding us, offending us? And Peter throws out a pretty extravagant number here. As many as seven times, and most rabbis at the time would have said that three is plenty and reasonable. The problem with Peter's answer is that he's still thinking of forgiveness as a kind of ritual. He's still in old kingdom thinking. He's in the old kingdom under the law and under ceremony and under duty, and he's not moved his thinking and his heart into the new kingdom. And what Jesus wants to do is move Peter from the old kingdom into the new kingdom. So in the old kingdom of the law, And in the old kingdom of the flesh, Peter is thinking of forgiveness as sort of a polite social construct or of a religious duty. And really, when you get right down to it, what Peter is asking is, what is the minimum I can forgive someone and still have it count to me as credit? Right? You can kind of read that in what Peter is saying. He's saying, if I forgive somebody seven times, do I get credit for that? So is seven the minimum? Can I just do seven and still have done my duty? And it's a very poorly developed notion of forgiveness. Like I say, it's old kingdom thinking. It's kind of like when we're little kids and somebody takes one of our toys and we get angry and we push them over. And at that point, a parent or a teacher comes along and says, now you two need to apologize to one another and you need to forgive one another. And so you need to hug and be friends again and say you're sorry. And so in that situation, You know, under the law, under the duty, we kind of narrow our eyes and we grit our teeth and we hug it out because we're taught this is the right thing to do and we need to do our duty. And honestly, for some of us, forgiveness never really matures beyond that social duty or beyond that legalistic, polite social construct. From that point on in our lives, we kind of are taught to view forgiveness as what is the minimum I have to do to be socially acceptable? or to be seen as the good guy. And that's really what Peter betrays here in his question. Peter is still thinking of forgiveness as some sort of nursery school rule that if you can figure out the rules and do it right, then you pass the test. But you just wanna do sort of the minimum of what your duty is. And it doesn't actually deal with the real issue nothing gets resolved. There hasn't been any transparency or vulnerability. There's been no repentance or acknowledgement of the cost. You just did your minimum duty in order to feel that you took the high road and got credit for it. And unfortunately, a lot of us still, either consciously or unconsciously, look at forgiveness that way today, still in the church. That forgiveness is somehow a Christian duty that we just do, and if we do the minimum of our Christian duty so that we take the high road and we've done the right thing, then we're finished with it. But Jesus will have none of that. And so since Peter asks a numerical question, Jesus gives Peter a numerical answer, following the proverb that you answer a fool in his folly, answer him in kind. But his answer numerically staggers him. But then Jesus goes on from his numerical answer to give Peter a parable following the proverb, do not answer a fool in his folly. <laughs> you need to go on, the, go, go past the foolishness of the question and answer it in a way that gives wisdom. And that parable that Jesus then gives is really meant to shift Peter's entire category of thinking about what forgiveness is. You're not thinking about forgiveness in the right category, Peter. You're not thinking about forgiveness the way you need to be thinking of it. And your question betrays that. So Jesus needs to teach him that. And perhaps he needs to teach us that too. Because when Jesus has done the parable, it will become obvious that Christian forgiveness is not really about measuring up to some legalistic duty of religious behavior. It's not a set of motions that we go through. True forgiveness in the Christian community is something far more profound, something far more difficult, but also something far more rewarding. So we still today need to learn the lessons that Jesus is going to teach us here and recognize the impossible task that Jesus has given us, but at the same time the inexhaustible resource that God has given us to accomplish it. So we learn what true forgiveness costs and how it's possible for grace and mercy to bear that cost. So let's just consider this morning Peter's question, How many times must I forgive? But dig into the parable that Jesus then tells about forgiveness following that question. And I'll just pray before we open up God's Word. Father God, we need these lessons in forgiveness. And you spend a considerable section in Matthew, in your fourth discourse here, your fourth teaching segment on forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take note of that and that we would give it the importance that you give it and that we would recognize how you are trying to move your disciples from old kingdom thinking to new kingdom thinking. That you have introduced a new category in terms of our thinking of forgiveness and we need to think the way you think about forgiveness. We need to do and act in forgiveness the way you act. And so Father, we thank you for these lessons as we open your word this morning in Christ's name, amen. So let's start with the parable, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Jesus answers Peter and he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So I'll just pause there. Right away, at the beginning of the parable, Jesus signals immediately that this is a new kingdom reality. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. He's saying, Peter this is new kingdom stuff, not old kingdom stuff. You gave an old kingdom answer, I'm going to give you a new kingdom answer of what forgiveness is like. And in this new kingdom, servants are going to learn about forgiveness by the example of their king, is what Jesus says. There's a king, and he's going to go about this process of forgiveness, and we're going to learn from him. And this king, again, right off the bat from this first sentence, this king Is a king who wishes to settle accounts. The king desires relationships free from any debt or obligation standing in the way of his relationships with his servants. Okay, so that's new kingdom reality. This is the king. This is the kind of king that he is. Then he goes on, he says, when he began to settle the debts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So I'll just pause briefly here again but there are debts. The king wants debt-free, obstacle-free relationships with his servants, but there are debts, and there's no sense pretending that there are not debts. Something is owed, and so something has to be dealt with, and the king has counted up the cost of what he's owed. He knows that if the servant is ever going to pay his debt, it is a very big debt. Okay, so that sets the stage, and now I'm going to finish off. I'll, I'll go through the rest of the parable, and we'll unpack it at the end. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii and seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this, fellow, so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then this master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also may the heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So there's lots of lessons here, but we're just going to look at a couple of the key ones that I think stand out. And the first thing in new kingdom forgiveness, what Jesus is saying Just as he said back in the instructions that we have to be vulnerable and we have to go and confess how our brother harmed us, Jesus is re-emphasizing that Christian forgiveness must count the cost of the offense. It must count the cost of the debt. I mean, here it's 10,000 talents, and from a literary point of view, 10,000 was the largest Greek number in terms of a number that had a name, and the talent was the largest unit or denomination of money. So it's the largest number of the largest monies. And you could just leave it as a storytelling uh, mechanic that way, and you could just leave it as a literary device that Jesus uses, the largest number of the largest amount of money. But it is a calculatable amount, and Jesus seems to want people to understand that it is an amount that you can calculate because he compares it to a much smaller amount later. Now, a Hebrew talent was 100 denarius, and one denarius was a poor laborer's wage. Let's call it $100. And so a talent was $10,000. And this is 10,000 talents. So that's a million days of labor, or $100 million, right? So, so it, I mean, it's a literary device, but it's also a calculable number. It's a million days of labor that this man owes the king. And then he compares it later to a debt of 100 Denari, or a hundred days labor or $10,000. It's not nothing, but here's the point. I'm sure you've gathered. I can pay off a $10,000 debt with a little patience or a little mercy from my debtor. I can never pay off a hundred million dollar debt, not on my salary, not on any of our salaries, I don't think, right? I can't pay off a million days labor, So now a common mistake in Christian forgiveness is thinking that we should minimize the hurt or reduce what the cost is of us to forgive. That seems reasonable. Isn't it easier, we think, to forgive if we pretend that it's not that big, as if we act as if we're not really hurt that badly? And when you go into forgiveness and you don't actually count the cost of what it is you need to forgive, what you end up with is a half-baked Half effective sort of forgiveness that never really takes effect. Jesus doesn't seem to have any part of that way of thinking. In this parable, Jesus puts the cost of forgiveness at the front and center. This parable is all about how much it costs to forgive. The king knows what he is owed, and he knows what he will lose or what he won't be repaid if he decides to forgive. And so does the ungrateful servant. He knows what it costs and what he's not going to ever get back if he forgives it. Biblical forgiveness, we have to understand, is regularly defined and experienced as the canceling of a debt. For other examples, we could go to the book of Philemon in which the apostle Paul is asking a friend of his to forgive one of his servants who returns to him. And he says in verse 18 of Philemon, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is saying, if there is some debt between you that is preventing forgiveness, charge it to me. Blame me. Put it on my tab. And then Paul goes on to say, and once you put it on my tab, I know you'll forgive it because you know what I've done for you. Right? And so if, if it's on me, then you're not going to worry about repayment because you know how much you owe me. Or you could go to Colossians 2.14 and describes what Jesus did. Describes his time on the cross as canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the Bible does not shy away from saying sin and offense is a debt that needs to be repaid. And we start in kingdom forgiveness with counting up that cost accurately. If we don't count the cost, then what we're doing actually is pretending that sin is not sin. If we don't count the cost of the offense against us before we go into forgiveness, then what we're saying is that within our Christian community, within the church, within our fellowship and relationship with each other, we are somehow able to accommodate a little bit of sin. There's some sin that we don't have to tally up. There's some sin that we can kind of sweep under the carpet and ignore. There's sin that we can just kind of turn a blind eye to and make allowance for in our relationship and in our community. That's really what it means when we refuse to actually face and count the cost of offense and sin. But here's the danger of that behavior in Christian community. First of all, if we minimize sin that way and we refuse to face it and account for it and accommodate it, then sin is never really regarded as sin. Offense is never really regarded as offense. Harm and wounds are never fully acknowledged as being truly harmful because we minimize them. Oh, that damage I did to you really wasn't all that bad, is what we're trying to say. And that says something deeply disturbing about our perception of reality and our values, doesn't it? If we treat sin that way and we don't take an accounting for what it is and what we need to forgive, then we live in a make-believe world where the harm we do really isn't all that bad, and maybe Jesus didn't even really need to die for it. I mean, maybe other bad people have done horrible things, but not us, because we're comfortable making room in our relationships for a little bit of sin and not counting it but a little tiny bit of yeast makes the whole batch of dough puff up. If we accommodate even a little sin, a little compromise, it will eventually affect everything. But secondly, if we make excuses for sin or minimize it and not count it up, it also says that we cope with things by not confronting reality. So what we're doing when we don't honestly face and count the sin that is in our relationships is we construct a dishonest and inauthentic Christian community. It constructs a church where Fellowship is where we pretend everything is nice and sweet and calm on the surface. But underneath the smooth surface, the sharks are feeding. Underneath the dinner table or the communion table, the knives are out. The peace of relationships where sin is not counted and dealt with in full is a dishonest peace. It's not honoring to God and it does not do any good to anybody. It's really just a charade if we don't count sin accurately. And that should never happen, but it does. And what you end up with is not Christian fellowship, but just superficial manners and duty to one another. And that's what Peter's question revealed, right? Peter was just asking, Jesus, what's the right number of times I'm supposed to forgive somebody who's in my church? Is it seven times? Okay, I will do seven times. And then after that, I can stop pretending that I like them, I guess. But Jesus says, no, you count the cost and you do not be dishonest with yourself or with others. And you call sin, sin. And then thirdly, if you take that attitude of sort of accommodating sin in relationships and sort of sweeping it under the carpet and not really wanting to count it for what it really is and admit the damage that it causes. Then thirdly, it says we don't really care about people. We don't love them enough to want to restore our fellowship with them. We don't want to regain our brother or our sister. They don't matter enough to me to bother having a healthy relationship with them. So I will just sort of, you know, accommodate this awkwardness between us. I'll just kind of live with this tension rather than have fully restored relationship and love them as I should. And so when we don't count sin fully and offense fully. We actually devalue people and the importance of a pure relationship with them. Think of the king here. Think of our father, our heavenly king. God loved us while we were still his enemies. Jesus loved those who hated him, and he went to the garden of Gethsemane, and he toiled under the pressure of what forgiveness would cost him. Don't imagine that there's anything about the forgiveness of Jesus that does not fully count the cost of the sin that he had to pay for. Jesus counted every sin and paid for it all. He sweat blood through his skin as he considered the price that he would pay in order to restore a pure relationship with those who sinned against him. And so as we go into forgiveness, We cannot pretend that the Christian approach to forgiveness is that we don't count the cost or that we somehow make accommodation for or permit some little bit of sin to be swept under the carpet or turned away. We must count the cost before we enter into the forgiveness process so that we know exactly what it is we must pay in order to forgive it. And secondly, we learn That we must have mercy to bear the cost of what cannot be repaid. In the parable, it says, And out of pity or mercy for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And later on, he says, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So the king in the parable is never going to get the money back from his servant, right? That's the whole point of the million days labor or the hundred million dollars. He's never going to get that money back. When he chooses to forgive the debt, he doesn't mean that he doesn't suffer loss. He does suffer the loss. That's why it's forgiveness. And as we go into a forgiveness process and we count up the cost of how we have been offended, then we set our hearts out of mercy to bear whatever price, whatever harm, whatever wound, whatever offense has been committed against us. We have to consider why it's mercy and how we bear it, or how we pay it. So the king has counted the cost, and he's decided, I'm never going to get that money back. I have decided to forgive you what you owe me out of mercy. It's mercy because it acknowledges that the debt really is unpayable. This is so important to this parable, and so important to our understanding of forgiveness. We have to acknowledge that the debt really is unpayable. Nobody can go back and undo whatever it is they have done to you. The humiliation has happened. The loss of reputation took place. The words were spoken. The nose was broken. The pain was real. Nobody who sinned, including you, can ever fully repay what they have done. It's a million days wages, and we don't have enough days in our life to pay them. And so if that debt is unpayable, if that debt is never going to go away, and if our relationship is ever going to be restored, then we must see the crushing debt that our brother or sister has put themselves under by their sin. And seeing the fact that they are crushed under a debt of sin that they can never repay, then we have mercy upon them. And out of that mercy, we can refuse to demand payment. We can release them of that debt the way the king released his servant. What life-changing words the servant heard from the king. Those three or four little words the king said to him. And he forgave him the debt. He forgave the debt. Those are life-changing words to that servant who owes a million days labor to the king, and the king says, I forgive it. You're not burdened by that debt anymore. You're not crushed by what is unpayable. And out of mercy, we have that option to see and count the debt that our brother or sister has against us, debt they can never repay, and out of mercy, forgive it. And we've already borne the cost. A lot of times people say, I can't forgive him. It costs too much. What he did was too harmful. I don't know how I can ever forgive it. But there's a sense in which you've actually already paid. You're already bearing the cost, just like the king. I don't know what this $100 million was or how the servant ended up owing it to him. Maybe he burned down one of his palaces or or he borrowed a whole bunch of money and lost it in some weird economic way that it cost the king $100 million. I don't know how he got such a crushing debt. But the reality of the parable here is that the king has already lost the money to this servant. It's gone. He's already paid it. Somehow out of his estate, the $100 million is gone. He doesn't have it, and the servant's not going to give it back. So, so the fact that the harm has been done is done. Whatever offense you've received from people, however they've sinned against you, it's happened and you are bearing the cost of it. The only question left is, will he leave this servant enslaved to that unpayable debt or will he release him? The only question that we have after we've been sinned against, whatever it is, we've borne the pain of that wound. Now the question is just, Are we going to leave the person under that unrepayable debt and under that burden? Or are we going to acknowledge that we have paid the price and we will forgive them the debt? And that's the position we're put in when others sin against us or when we sin against them. They cannot repay the cost. And you can't pay it back when you sin against others. So between you and that person where they've sinned against you or you've sinned against them on the balance sheet of that relationship, that debt is there and it won't magically disappear. But all that's left to decide is, are you gonna let that debt enslave you and destroy that relationship? Will you bear the cost of the harm done to you out of mercy or will you leave your brother or sister enslaved to the debt? And are you gonna choose vengeance over mercy Because the implication of showing mercy and bearing the cost is that we then choose not to seek vengeance or repayment. The king does not seek vengeance. He forgoes vengeance when he is asked for forgiveness. And instead, we must learn to forgive from the heart. Jesus' final statement here, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is the answer that he's ultimately giving Peter. St. Peter, the forgiveness you're talking about is just duty. It's just social responsibility or something. It's just the minimum that you can do to accomplish some sort of religious accomplishment. He says, this needs to be forgiveness from your heart. This is about the new kingdom, Peter. It's about how we must follow the example of our king or else be judged by our own standards. This is a heart issue, not a religious or a social duty. That's the wrong kingdom, Peter. In this kingdom, forgiveness is a heart issue. You need to forgive in the kingdom the way the king forgives you. You need to look at the reality of what the heavenly king has done, the reality of what God has done for us. And in this way, Jesus changes the whole category of forgiveness from religious duty to heart-level relationship. You have to forgive the way you are going to be forgiven because the king, God, does not hold one of your sins against you. Not one. He does not hold the sins that you remember against you, sins that you wish you had never done. He doesn't hold those sins against you and ask you to pay that debt. He doesn't hold the sins that the devil casts up against you again and again in your mind. The penalty for those sins is gone. Jesus bore all of your sins. Not just the okay sins, the socially acceptable ones, not just the sins that you forgive yourself for. Jesus forgives the sins that you would dare not even mention. You are in Jesus Christ forgiven, utterly free from the debt of sin. This is the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about, not seven times, complete, 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 the number seven is the number of completeness or the number of perfection. And so Peter, when he says, if, if I forgive, do I forgive seven times? He's like, do, do I forgive completely? And Jesus says, yeah, completely, but completely, completely, completely. <laughs> seven times seven, 70, seven times 70, 490 times, whatever the number is. Complete, 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 complete. You forgive. Just as Jesus forgives, utterly free from the debt of sin. And we are fellow servants. We're like, we're like the servant who went out with all his other servants and started interacting with them. He left the king and he went out to his fellow servants. Shouldn't we have mercy on each other just as the king has had mercy on us? What right have I not to forgive somebody who Jesus died for? What right have I to not forgive such a tiny debt? A hundred days wages. You know, not nothing, not nothing but not a million days' wages, $10,000, not $100 million. It's not nothing, but what right have I to not count up the cost as Jesus counted the cost and forgive my brother since Jesus has forgiven me? If I claim to be a servant of Christ who, and I look at a fellow servant who's wronged me, who am I to put myself between them and Jesus and heap unforgiveness on them? while at the same time I receive forgiveness. That's really the main lesson here that Jesus is teaching about Christian forgiveness. That it is important that we count the cost, because if we don't count the cost, we are accommodating sin. And having fully counted the cost, just as Jesus did, we recognize how unpayable that debt is. The people who have sinned against us can never repay what they have done. So they will be enslaved under that debt forever unless we have mercy and forgive them just as we have received mercy from the Father. But as a way of an example or a way of a conclusion, I just want to look at a real-life example here from the Old Testament of someone who was seriously sinned against at least as much and perhaps far more than any of us has ever been sinned against. Sinned in real-life, family-relationship ways that had serious implications on his life we're going to look at how he responded just very quickly, because I I think the story of Joseph shows us that this is not just an academic exercise. This applies to real things that happen to real people, and he reaps the reward of real forgiveness. So you remember the story of Joseph. His brothers are jealous. He's the favored son. Uh, They treat him badly as a child. Eventually, they kidnap him, and they throw him in a pit with plans to kill him. Nice older brothers, right? And then they come And then instead of killing him and he's in the pit, they completely alter the course of his life by selling him into slavery to Egypt. Joseph is not going to see his family again for over 20 years because of this decision that his brothers have made. And he spends a fair amount of that time in prison as well. So he is sold into slavery and then ends up thrown into prison until finally he gets the attention of Pharaoh after about 17 years of slavery and imprisonment. And he's raised to second in command of Egypt And so let's just establish the fact here in this story that there's some debt of sin and offense that the brothers might owe Joseph for their actions. Can't you agree? (laughs) That his brothers have acted towards Joseph in such a way that maybe there's some debt that he has to count up and forgive, just a little bit. And the brothers, for their part, if they knew Joseph was still alive, are fully aware of the damage they have done, and they would never relish the idea of facing Joseph because they know they could never repay it. How can you repay somebody for 20 years of their life, of being sold into slavery, of going to Egypt, of not seeing their family, of being you know, cut out of the family for all of that time, and having to be in prison and all of those things? The brothers could never repay that debt. But when the brothers come to Egypt looking for food, Joseph encounters them. Events transpire in a way that they never could have expected. And we kind of get the big reveal in Genesis 45. Let's just see whether Joseph and the forgiveness that Joseph offers is a mirror of the kingdom forgiveness that Jesus is teaching in the parable. It says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said to him, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph doesn't forget what happened. Joseph is not unaware of the debt that his brothers owe him. You think Joseph doesn't know exactly the consequences of what his brothers have done? He says, I remember Yeah, I'm the brother that you sold into Egypt. And he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So Joseph didn't forget what they'd done. Sin will be put behind us, but not until after we count up the cost. If we rush into forgiveness and we get this backwards and we too quickly try to forget or minimize the offense, then we can't really forgive. And so when Joseph confronts his brother, he reminds them that he knows what it is that they did. Sometimes we're sinned against in ways that fundamentally change our lives. Someone may do more than just cut us off in traffic, you know, or maybe embarrass us a little bit in front of our friends. They may deal crushing blows to our marriage. They may cause harm to our children. They may cause us to lose our job or alter the course of our career and our life. And that damage never disappears. That cost has to be borne. Joseph can never get back the years that he lost to his brother's actions. He will always bear the price of those years. But true forgiveness says, I remember and I know what it is that I have to pay. And I will bear the cost of what you have done because it can never really be repaid. It has to be forgiven. And then he shows mercy. He says, do not be distressed. Right off the bat, Joseph's response is, come close to me and don't be afraid. Don't be distressed. I'm going to be merciful to you. Joseph's response after acknowledging the damage that they did to him is to be merciful. Don't fear. I'm in God's hands anyways. I'm a fellow servant of God like you. And not only should you not be distressed or afraid of me wanting payback, how could you ever repay? I'm going to be merciful to you because God has been merciful to me. He says, I'm going to rescue you and your families. Let's look back at the text here and what he says. He says, I'm here to preserve you as a remnant on earth and keep you alive for many survivors. Hurry up and go to father and say to him, thus says Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't tarry. Dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. So Joseph says, Yeah, you did all this harm, but my response to you is mercy. Not only do do I forgive the debt of what you did, I'm I'm gonna pour out the mercy that God has poured out on me. I'm gonna pour that mercy out on you. Joseph overflows with mercy towards his brothers who sinned against him, because he knows that God has shown him mercy first. And he shows mercy to his brothers the same way the heavenly father, the king of heaven, has shown mercy to him. Romans 12, 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He will repay justly. That's not for us to do. And so when we show mercy, we choose not to take vengeance. And Joseph forgives from the heart. Notice in all of this that Joseph never says anything like what Peter asks of Jesus. Joseph doesn't sit back on his throne room and think, okay, now what, you know, I'm a good Godfather and follower, and I've proven that I'm a good God follower, so what is the minimum minimum amount that I can forgive my brothers and have it count to my credit with God? Joseph never says anything like that. Or he never sits back and says, How much is God expecting me to forgive and I'll get credit for it? No, Joseph wants his brothers restored to him. He values his relationship with them and he values them and he is willing to bear the entire cost of their sin and to pay the full price of it and not count any of it against them in order that they would be restored to himself in relationship. He pays the complete, complete, complete price. The biggest number in the biggest currency. Joseph forgives from the heart, not from duty. You know, you were not forgiven because you deserved it. I was not forgiven because I deserved it. We were forgiven because God forgave us from his heart when we did not deserve it. Forgiveness is not cheap. Forgiveness is not blind. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is a deeply profound image of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when we do forgiveness right... It will set us apart from the world and set us free from the bondage of sin. But only if we do not make accommodation for it. Only if we bring all of it out onto the table and count it all up in full. And having taken a full account of the sin between us and our brother or sister in relationships, we then follow the example of Christ and by the power of Christ set each other free from that debt by being willing to bear the debt in our own bodies that Christ bore for us. Father God, thank you for your word on forgiveness. We just pray that it would reach us, that we would think in our own relationships, who do we think owes us? What has it cost us, and will we bear the price as you bore for us? Amen.